Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. I already had little appetite for celebrating International Women's Day this year. While women felt so under attack, I had nothing of joy to impart, and so I kept silent this time last week. With the grim first anniversary of COVID and my energy for optimism of a more equal society sapped by the harsh reality that even a virus compounds women's discrimination, I remained quiet. With women carrying the heavier burden for childcare, for working in the lowest paid jobs, for being more likely to be picked for furlough, for being at risk of redundancy, for working longer hours, and under greater exposure to the load of long-term financial insecurity, I said nothing. With lockdown resulting in an ever-increasing rise in cases of domestic violence, with refuges losing funding, and with just that creeping feeling that the clock was being turned back in so many ways, And with women so disproportionately taking the economic and social hits of this terrible pandemic, I had nothing to say. But then the news about Sarah Everard hit. A young woman walking home from a friend's house in London at night, snatched from the street and murdered. I and thousands of women then found our voice. Just another woman killed, maybe. It happens every day. But sometimes they're just a tipping point, like the death of George Floyd gave the urgency to Black Lives Matter. So too, the death of Sarah served to remind women why our fight must go on. And it was a tragic reminder that women's lives are at risk simply because of who we are. It's an aid memoir to the fact that 118 women have been killed by men since this time last year, simply because of our sex. That three women a week die because of domestic abuse, And as Jess Phillips, the MP, read out the names that collectively constitute the annual death toll of women killed in the UK at the hands of a man of femicide, it was a salutary reminder that from the day that Sarah Everard went missing until the day her broken body was found, another six women and one little girl had also been killed. It took Jess Phillips four minutes to read through that list of dead women and she ended with the name that a nation had prayed would not be there. But what happened to Sarah, snatched it appears, in clear sight from a London street as she walked home, has cut many of us to the quick. We recognise her journey. It's one we play out in our minds every day. Those rituals, the calculations. We take the longer, the better route home. We hold our keys like a weapon. We take our headphones out. We phone ahead. We're hypervigilant. We wear trainers instead of high-heeled shoes. We might even take a taxi. But regardless of how we get there, we still walk in fear. I went on my first Reclaim the Night march back in 1980. I'm still marching, 41 years later, and I am tired. And how ironic then, that we're still asking to be able to walk the streets in safety as we hit yet another grim anniversary, 12 months on since as a country, we went into lockdown and became prisoners in our own homes. So much has changed in that year. Many of us will have lost loved ones. All of us will have been affected. And next Tuesday, there will be a nationwide minute silence as we think of the 125,000 who have died. 
I also want us to take that moment to contemplate what has happened to our lives because of this pandemic, to think about the country we want to be as we come out of it, the people we can and should be. And I, for one, want our country to be a place where women who've invested so much in getting us through this pandemic by caring for others can live lives free of fear. And surely if we're able to live as a world, and surely if we're able as a world to collectively change our behaviour to meet a virus head on, then surely we can achieve a society where women do not have to live lesser lives, diminished by the everyday calculations they make to be safe. Change is possible when we're prepared to challenge behaviour. And on that theme, for this week's podcast, I've interviewed Claire Sweeney, who is Director of Place and Wellbeing at Public Health Scotland. It is basically in Claire's job description to make change by challenging behaviour. And I started off by asking her how this last year has been for her. So Claire, Public Health Scotland being set up in the midst of a public health crisis was either incredible foresight or an absolute nightmare. (laughs) Which was it? It was both. It was both. Um, I could say we've not um, had the start that we would have liked, for sure. Um, And it's been really challenging. We've had to um, refocus, as with all people, an awful lot of our work um, around COVID. Um, But the reason that Public Health Scotland was established um, has really, I think it's just been brought home through the pandemic, why that is so important. Um, So actually, whilst it's been really, really difficult um, trying to create a new body and the ambition for the new organisation, actually, we've got, you know, the mandate is really clear. It could not be clearer. Um, So in a way, the pandemic has brought a kind of commitment to improving people's public health, people's public health and people's lives more generally that we would never have seen otherwise, I think. So when you meet someone in a pub in normal times um, and they ask you, well, what is Public Health Scotland? What do you say? What would you say? So Public Health Scotland is there to improve people's lives, put really simply. Um, It's to improve people's lives across a whole range of different areas. Um, And what we're trying to work towards is a Scotland where everybody thrives. Now, underlying that is obviously a whole range of programmes and interventions that are focused on on helping to make a positive difference to people's health and people's lives. Um, So things like um, how strong the economy is, we're interested in that. Um, We're interested in things like transport um, through a public health lens. We're interested in um, the well-being generally of children and young people, access to green space, and the list goes on. Um, So I think it's just a a very, very broad um, approach to what makes a healthy and well population. That's what we're about. So while lots of people will see health as hospitals, if you like, you're taking that overarching, holistic look at how do we improve health so that you don't end up in hospital? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we just think about our own lives, um, what we need in our lives to make us feel well and happy um, and healthy is usually very little to do with the acute NHS part of the system, a hospital it's actually more to do with, you know, do I, um, can I see my friends? 
Do I um, get access to a good education? Do I get a chance to socialise? Do I take part in sport? Um, It's those things that make a a well-rounded and and healthy and happy life. And and we're, we're just as much, if not more so, interested in those things. Now, at the moment, obviously, all those things are impacted by what we're all living through. How difficult is it for you to see the wood for the trees, if you like, that we're in the midst of a crisis, but you have to think beyond that? Absolutely. It is It is a challenge. Um, I think that the challenge with public health is that it does touch all parts of our lives. So there's no shortage of work. <laughs> there's no shortage of things we could be trying to address. But again, I would say the pandemic has, has has brought home to us that we really need to work with impact. We need to um, focus on those things where we can make most difference um, and target our, our efforts appropriately. So we know that some things have been exacerbated through um, COVID. So things like those those um, opportunities for children to play, to engage in outdoor space, um, we're interested in our access to healthy food, etc. So uh, there are lots of aspects that have been um, negatively impacted by COVID. And for us, the job now is to identify those areas where we will focus our efforts to, to make most um, impact. And so we published our um, strategic plan for the organisation in the midst of COVID, which was a challenge but needed to be done. And we're focusing on um, sort of four big priorities. So one of them is inevitably about um, COVID and the COVID response. Um, But the other areas um, are mental well-being. So we know that that has been described as the kind of next tsunami facing the population. We're seeing that in in our day-to-day lives ourselves, I'm sure. Um, And then we will do work around um, place and communities, Um, And we'll also um, do work around the economy and poverty. And critically, part of that is about child poverty. So we see those kind of four, those four large areas as the areas where we'll get most bang for our buck, where we can make most difference. And we have to be fairly ruthless to focus our efforts on those things because we could get drawn into a million different areas. I'm going to come back to some of the, particularly actually, the mental health issue, but I wanted to talk about some of the inequalities. I mean, clearly we already know that um, the disadvantaged have been disproportionately uh, affected by COVID and we went into this pandemic perhaps not very healthy. So I just wonder how you improve the health of a nation, if you like. As you say, becoming um, even worse because of um, because of the pandemic, and it's those particularly um, more marginalised communities that we would really, really worry about the most. Um, so, as you rightly say, we went into the pandemic with with some of the the the, the side of highest levels of inequality across our society, across um, Western Central Europe, certainly. Um, so, we were not going into this in a great state. Um, but absolutely the science from all of the research and the evidence base we've got is that COVID is, is, is affecting those communities far, far more than it is others. Um, and that goes for things like, um, you know, income and fair work. It goes, it speaks to things like um, access to uh, good food um, and an availability of food. We know that um, there is a real worry about people's access to food now, not least because of, of COVID and a lot of other factors. Um, and also the, the way that we live in communities. So do people have gardens? You know, do they have time and and do they have um, 
of the di- access to digital that they need to help their children at school at home. So there's a whole load of different issues that COVID has just highlighted um, more than before. And of course, all the economic hardship that's going to come and exclusion from many mainstream services or other factors. So, I mean, long story short, the, the challenges were significant to start with, but, but coming through COVID, those have been um, exacerbated. Now, the good thing about that, if there is a good thing in that, is that it has heightened everyone's awareness of it, I think. Um, so we now know much more about um, the sorts of things that we need to do to improve the situation for people. So there's lots of um, interventions we can make that make a difference. And I think for us, our job is, is is working with a whole range of different partners to to really start to accelerate the changes that we need to see. It's really interesting speaking to you, Claire, because the things that you describe are not things that people would normally associate with health. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is part of the problem that in the past, public health might have seen as a help been seen by others as a, as a kind of that's for the health system to deal with. But it absolutely is not. Um, so for us, the partnerships that we're creating, um, we're equally as interested in economic development in the city regions as we are um, the role of Scottish Water and some of the other big national organisations in Scotland. We're very, very interested in how we adopt a community wealth building approach across Scotland um, and working with a lot of partners to make that much more of a reality than it's been before. So absolutely, health is is key. Absolutely, there's a role there. Of course, there is. But we need to broaden our vision quite significantly if we're going to make a difference. Now, going back to that um, issue that you mentioned about mental health, I mean, I think probably one of the positives of us all being in this together, if you like, has been that people seem to be much more open about talking about their mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, is that your experience? And and how do we then, if you like, capitalise on that so that we continue that conversation? Absolutely. I think the the issue about um, tackling stigma, um, which has been kind of on on the go for quite a while, I think it's really come to the fore now because everybody's experiencing that to some degree, unfortunately. Um, So before we might have talked about waiting lists for treatment, which is, you know, there are absolutely still things that need to improve there. I think there's just a greater recognition that there's so many other things that have an impact on your mental health. Um, And again, COVID has, has really brought that to the fore for all of us. I mean, we... I'll not be alone in knowing that there are colleagues who have been upset at work. And we're seeing that kind of thing so much more obviously before because, you know, we're we're working at home, you're seeing people's families, you're seeing the kind of richness of life happening around people. Um, and and I think just more of an openness about the fact that everybody has times when they they really need help. And sometimes that might be medication. But sometimes that might be, you know, somebody to listen to, talking therapies. I just think it's becoming so much more part of a a recognition that it's something we all experience. We know the number of folk who are going to experience mental health problems was already quite high anyway in the population. Um, But definitely post-COVID will be, there will be definitely other new things we need to think about, about about the impact on people's mental health. But then I think one of the things I've been thinking quite a lot about throughout the pandemic is that we've dealt with stigma in mental health to a degree. So, you know, encouraging people to speak up and be open about it. But actually what we haven't done is talk about the stigma of poverty so much. Um, and I think there's some interesting parallels there. How do we move away from that sense of, of um, 
of shame and embarrassment about poverty actually towards a system where we know that happens to people and it is not their fault. Um, so I think there's lots we can learn from the mental health approach. And I mean, a, a lot of that work comes into the work that was in fact published today with the National Task Force for Human Rights Leadership. And, and you were on that working group, weren't you? And yes. helped produce the report. Can you explain to me what it actually means? Because I think a lot of these terms for people, human rights, public health, um, they seem confused. They're not quite sure what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the, the Human Rights Task Force um, was pulled together to start to think about a new approach to human rights in Scotland. Um, it's recommended some things that have never been done before about um, incorporation of, of a lot of kind of existing legal frameworks in Scotland. So essentially, it's about um, making Scotland a fairer and more equal place. At its very simplest level, that's what it's all about. Um, so the work of the task force has been integral in pulling together the recommendations um, to then help the government to think through what forthcoming legislation might look like. So at its heart, it's about Scotland being a fairer and more equal place. It's quite a simple concept, really. There are also just words, though, as well, Claire. Mm. I mean, how do we actually make that a reality? How, yeah. For lots of people, it will be about work, it'll be about money, it'll be about how they improve their lives that way. I mean, what practical steps do you think we can make? That's absolutely right. And I think that's one of the challenges um, with, with human rights um, across the board. So it, obviously, this is not a new term. Um, and I think the kind of principles underpinning a, a human rights based approach, everybody would sign up to. Um, and I think we've got to ask ourselves why that has been on the go for so long and actually has not got the traction that it could do. And and you kind of touch on a point um that I've been kind of at pains to keep mentioning the task force discussions is that we can have the best kind of framework around all of this to help set us on the right course. But actually, the, the devil is in the how it's how it's adopted and how we implement it. Um, and for that, we know that, yes, some of it is about people being aware of their rights and being able to challenge and be supported to do that. But it's about human rights being built into absolutely everything that we do as a as a nation, um, which, again, brings its challenges. Do you know, there are areas that we know are not as well funded as we might like. So how do they then respond to um, the human rights ask? Um, so it's 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 kind of, it is it's far reaching. But you're right. The kind of hard work starts here, I think, in terms of how we make sure it's implemented. So there is a way to go yet. Um, with thinking about um, the, the support that would need to go in to make sure that we do this and do it seriously and do it really well. Um, so training and support for people, um, raising awareness about rights, um, making it a core part of how we engage with each other across society. Um, these are all going to be key parts of um, making sure that it's embedded and it actually means something to people rather than it just being words on a page. It will have failed if that happens. I suppose what worries me, Claire, is I've been around for a long time and, um, you know, I trained as a journalist in West of Hales in the 1980s, just as the whole uh, intravenous drug problems were all starting. 25 years ago, um, I was doing a television programme for the BBC looking at the difference in life expectancy between Bears Den and Drum Chapel, you know, separated by such a small geographic distance, but life expectancy was, the difference was enormous. It just feels like we've been working away at this for so long. Yes, I think that's right. There, there are a few um, 
issues I think that have got in the way. Um, so some of the things that have hampered progress, I think, are the way that in Scotland we um, we prioritise. So we've got the national performance framework, and we've got a kind of a, a, a kind of the good the good things in Scotland that can help to move this on. Um, but sometimes we don't prioritise those, so we are very distracted by. Um, do you know how we hold people to account the sorts of things we measure what does success look like and we don't almost ask the right questions so what if we want um, an organization to be um, really delivering the right things across and in a fair and just way across all parts of community we might ask very different questions about what success looks like than we currently do um, so that might mean that actually the way organizations know if they're being successful needs to change um, it certainly means that there's something about the way that um, power works between um, the public sector and other sectors and the public. So making sure that people have a voice and it's a strong voice, that they are involved in making decisions, in shaping services. And we've had some really good attempts at doing that in Scotland, but it has been patchy. So things like um, self-directed support in the social care arena, uh, which started to hand over money and decision-making to people who needed support. Um, and that didn't really quite gain the traction that it could. Um, so I think it has been marginal where we've done some really good examples, but it's always been a bit patchy. So this is about trying to move this thing whole scale and taking it far more seriously as a country, which is, is quite different territory to be in, I would argue. It's it's interesting when you look at some of our big public health challenges and um, things like the smoking ban. So we're 15 years, uh, the 15 years anniversary shortly. I mean, I don't think people would have quite believed that we could have changed our habits um, so quickly. And yet we did it. Yes. And I think it's these examples that we need to hang on to. Um, so if you look at things like um, the work that's been done in Scotland on alcohol over the last few years as well, I mean, we're seeing that is making a difference. Um, and for us, part of the job is because, again, one of the challenges is that sometimes um, as well as thinking public health is just health, there's an argument goes that, well, it's public health, so therefore it's it's public health Scotland's job. And that and if that's the way that we go, that will definitely not make the change that we need to see. It's a, It needs to be something that it, all organisations and, and, and the public as well are involved in and take seriously. So there are the, those great examples where we've made progress and we need to build on that and find more of those things. And some of the things that... Um, that 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 we consider when we're doing that are things like do we have a good evidence base so we know what if we know what works then we can start to kind of spread that learning and get it to happen um so sometimes we don't know what works and there's there's more to do around that um other things that can get in the way of making the change is if the timing isn't right and if there's not the kind of the general will across the country for change, which there was around tobacco and there has been around alcohol. And I think it's finding those those, those the right time, the right evidence base and the, and the, and the interest and commitment from the public to make a difference. Um, and, and harnessing that, harnessing those conversations are really key to it. And for us, part of the challenge is getting those public health arguments across in a way that it's easy for the public to connect with and, and find something that they can contribute around it, which sometimes is a challenge. Um, but I think we're getting a lot better at doing that. Do you think, strange, strangely, if you like, that 
the tragedy of this pandemic where it's affected everybody gives you an opportunity to be able to say, look, this, these are the positive lessons of what can happen when we all work together on something. Very much so. One of the greatest things has been um, how communities have changed and come together. And I think there's quite a lot of folk look at that in awe, actually, of what, what is achievable. Um, so we want to harness that and build on that. And I think sometimes it's a it's a case of almost people getting out of the way. So actually, if you look at a particular uh, local area where there are you know high levels of poverty high levels of need you will sometimes find that there's a lot of resource going into those areas but it's quite disparate and it's quite disconnected and I think for us there's something interesting to think about well what ha- would happen if we joined all of that up much more effectively actually the, the, it might not be more money that is needed it might be you know different approaches to handing over power in some instances letting the community say what matters to them and what they need to see change rather than experts always going in and feeling like we have the answer Um, and I think a bit of humility um, around that is important but I would say that actually there is a there's a need for evidence base behind some of that and we can help with that so I think we see we've got quite a, a good convening power we want to open up our data we want to kind of have that much richer conversation with communities about where where what needs to change and how it could change because if they're not involved it it will not happen it's interesting Claire because I think you know I was involved with uh, the Campbell Christie Commission and very close to Campbell and remember the whole ethos around that and it changed the whole idea of the prevention agenda changed Mm -hmm. a lot of things but it sounds as if your work is also building still on that Yes, very much so. Um, And some of this is not a quick game to begin either. If we want to um, improve the outcomes for um, adults living in Scotland, you start way, way, way back. We know that you start, you know, almost kind of um, before children are born, but you certainly start in those early years. And so some of the um, public health agenda can only really fully be realised over generations but we're also at pains to say that there are some quick wins in this. There are some things we can do uh, more quickly, such as making sure that all of the money that is spent in Scotland is is seen through a public health lens. Um, so when we're building roads or we are in, you know, welcoming new businesses in, are we asking the questions about, well, what impact is this going to have on the public's health? So it, it is a long game and we've got some great legacies such as the Christie Commission to build on, but also there are some quicker things we can get better at. And, and that's where we're focusing a lot of our attention in, and over the next three years, certainly. One of the big issues uh, for Scotland's health is, is clearly obesity. And that's also been highlighted by the pandemic. It seems to be one of the most sensitive areas for people. I remember doctors saying that that was one of the most embarrassing things to talk about with patients was their weight. I mean, is that something that you're looking at? And and are there any quick wins on that? Yeah, so we are. There are there's a whole. Um, it's. I think sometimes it feels like that's quite a simple, a simple issue, but actually it's incredibly complicated. Um, And we know that it's connected to things like um, availability of certain foodstuffs. Um, So that's when we get into things like labelling and and, um, things that the calories consumed through alcohol as one particular area that we're interested in. 
Um, but equally, it's affected by um, supporting children and young people through sport and physical activity. Um, is actually absolutely that issue about stigma and shame, um, which we're really interested in, and also supporting people to make good choices. Um, and and all of those things come together to make a difference. So it isn't it isn't just picking off one area. And I would also say while we're talking about obesity, we also need to talk about about other issues um, relating to um, things that affect people's general health, such as trauma and um, you know, adverse life events that have had an impact on people that then lead to things like um, changes in their diet as a kind of comfort and effect or the level of drug and alcohol use in Scotland. So that they, this, on the face of it, they seem like incredibly simple things, but actually they're very, very complex because as humans, we're very complicated. You and I will have the same kind of experience. You know, you reach to things for comfort when things are difficult or stressful. Um, and I think just remembering that people don't fit into neat little boxes. Um, that actually, there is a there's a much um, there's a much richer tapestry we need to consider if we're going to make a difference. One of the things that I saw that was transformational, I'm sure you, you'll know about it, is uh, I think probably about 25 years ago, I went to North Karelia um, in Finland to do filming for the BBC. And that was an area that completely, basically the state just decided that it would change the lifestyle of its population because they had issues about obesity uh, and all the other accompanying things that go with that. And they really did change a population. Do you think that that also requires a population that is willing to just do what it's told? I, th- I, I would, I would not, I wouldn't use that language. Um, I think so. The criticism of a, a nanny state and and all of that kind of um, discourse. I think that you need to work with communities. Um, I definitely do believe that. I, I don't think anyone wants their their families to to experience things like mental distress or drug and alcohol misuse and problems with that. Um, So I think it's a balance to be struck. I think there are some things that as a society we can decide that that we are absolutely going to do something about. So smoking would be a good example of that. Um, Alcohol, again, would be a good example. But to get people to a place where that is taken seriously you need a good strong evidence base you need clear messaging around it you need to talk to communities about what works and makes a difference and and so I don't think there is one simple answer to it I think you know sometimes it is legislation sometimes it is about licensing um regulations and 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 what and planning planning approaches at a local level um and sometimes it is about um much softer things so i think it is a mixed approach and i and i don't think that needs to um mean that we're we're a bit weaker i think it means that we're we're being um, much smarter about how we apply um those things that will really make a difference when the time is right so for example one of the big things that's coming up um, in people's consciousness now is gambling and particularly for younger people, the access to online gambling. And we, truth be told, we don't know enough about it. We don't know about enough about the things that can really make a difference in that space. So there's always new things coming up at the same time and, 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 and the evidence base evolves over time. So sometimes you're in a better a better position to be able to start to make the changes that would be helpful. So when I think about alcohol minimum pricing, for example, we've got an incredibly rigorous um, amount of work around that to show um, 
from an evidence perspective, an independent evidence perspective, what is happening, what makes a difference and what is happening. And that is something that, you know, we need to we need to give time to. We need to put resource behind to make sure that that is there to support um, whatever might happen in terms of policy direction. And actually, you said a really important thing there about when I, when I was suggesting a nanny state just to get everybody fit and into the, the right place, you'd said... Um, it's about we can decide. It's about a community can decide. Mm. They're given the information and they, you have to take people with you, don't you? Yes, definitely. I think it's too easy to... to um, and, I, and we've seen examples of this over the years where, do you know, very well-meaning people can come in and, and say, actually, well, this is very bad for you as a community and you should stop doing it tomorrow. But, you know, unless you walk in, in people's shoes and, and really understand... Um, their perspective and their situation it, it's it's really difficult to do and I think we we know a lot more now about the fact that you can have a fantastic evidence base for something but if it doesn't chime with the community and there's not a willingness there and there's not and we haven't articulated um the issues clearly enough and had that discourse and that dialogue and debate then you know it's going to have arguably limited effects or certainly more limited effects than if you you worked with um, a community to lead that themselves so I'm kind of thinking and I I use this example an awful lot but there was some fantastic work done and there's loads of examples of this but fairly recently I'm sure it was just um, partway through last year there was some great work done with um, people who lived in housing that was not great in Leith um, which is where I live Um, some housing that was not great in Leith and um, instead of doing the usual, which is, you know, doing some surveys and, and kind of coming up with some proposals and implementing it, actually it got they, they involved people in this to such a degree that they were leading it and really understanding their stories about the impact of the housing on them and their families. And then the people helped shape what the response would be and the people helped kind of make the case and speak to folk about what needed to change and saw that change happen. And that, that's to me is really really powerful far more powerful than um than doing it from a distance and that to bring us back to the task force that was one of the most powerful parts of being involved in the task force um was actually sitting down with with children and young people virtually of course <laughs> and um and hearing their experiences of human rights for them right here and now in Scotland um and how it could be improved um so i think that that kind of real life stories is not something that's nice to add on it's essential to get the change we need to see. I was um, being a little bit lighthearted with Jason Leach when we were talking about public health messaging. I was thinking, you know, at the end of the day, we're living it in real time. We're seeing mm. people being listening to the communication about the pandemic, understanding that this is for the greater good if you take the pain of lockdown. And they reacted and they've done really well. I mean, that must be quite reassuring I guess for for you at Public Health Scotland. It is I think that the fact that people have heard those messages and engaged with it and um, the fact that people like Jason Leach are kind of household names now you know <laughs> that that public health message is so well recognised um, gives us a great opportunity to build on that. You People have demonstrated that they're actively interested in it because it affects their lives and and then we'll see all of the things that unfold you know once we kind of get used to the pandemic and work through what comes next 
And um, so I think that's got to be a really fantastic thing that's come from this, that um, we can we can have a different conversation in Scotland now than we could have had before. How's the pandemic changed you, Claire? Um, it has had the same effect on me, I think, as it has on most people, that there are days when it's quite nice to not have to commute and um, be here with my dogs and, and try and fight them off when I'm trying to work. Um, so some days that's been okay, that's fine. You can get your head down and you can focus. And then other times I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a very sociable person, so I have a really close group of friends and, and I miss them like mad. My family, as you might have guessed from the accent, aren't from around here. So um, my sister's in Northumberland and I miss her um, very much. And so the the sort of the virtual ways of keeping in touch have kind of um, become a bit tiresome in a social scenario quite quickly. Um, when you've been on screens all day, you don't really want to start doing it at nights and weekends. Um, so it's affected me in a very similar way, I think. Um, but I, I have made the conscious effort to um, look after my mental health throughout all of this as well, which is so it's, it's been quite helpful having time to do that at nights and weekends, actually. What have you done practically to help with that? So um, this is perhaps oversharing, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> I yeah, uh, I have I have depression. Um, so and I've not really spoken much about about that before, but I do have depression, and so I think for somebody in that situation, you do have to pay a bit more attention to it. Um, so the sorts of things I do is I swim. I swim in the sea, um, like most middle aged ladies these, these days, <laughs> which. Um, really really helps actually it genuinely I think the reason it's it's a popular thing amongst women of a certain age is because it, it's um it makes you feel alive it's a really good thing to do and it's outdoors um so I do that I'm fortunate to live enough close enough to the beach to be able to get there um I have dogs so I walk them and I read a lot um so whilst I'm quite a sociable person I do like my space I do like my quiet time do you wear one of those bobbly hats in the sea? I do. I'm one of those sad <laughs> people who wears a bobbly hat and it's the most unglamorous thing you can imagine, but um, it gives you life. It really does. Everyone's really enjoying I mean, I have to say I haven't done it yet. I eventually have to say to somebody, is it just swimming in the sea? <laughs> Seems to be got... It's not even really that. To be honest, Mandy, it's bobbing up and down in the sea. <laughs> just getting cold basically that's it and having a giggle it's um it's nice when you sometimes when you walk past it's at portobello i go and when you walk past you can hear the giggles and the screams and it's just lovely it's so so nice yeah. it's really interesting i mean like you saying you know is this about oversharing i i do think that's been one of the huge positives of this that everybody has almost been given a legitimacy to say yeah, I'm not coping or this is how I'm feeling. And there's just a little bit more openness. Yes, I, I definitely agree. It's nothing to be ashamed of anymore, actually. Do you know, I, I actually almost think we're getting to a stage where it's hard to imagine that you would have felt embarrassed about it. Isn't that interesting when you think the stigma that's been around it for so long? And it just is part of who we are, Do you know, every now and again, people experience things like this and then you move on it's that you, you know nobody is a you're not a machine um there's a human side to all of us and and what I think is lovely and and I and I've kind of thought about this quite a lot over the years is that you don't have to pretend to be somebody different in a work environment anymore so you know the thought of 
you know, somebody um, being very northern or having depression or whatever it might be, or, you know, coming out of school, not great results or whatever people might have to deal with. Or, you know, I don't know, it could be, it could be anything. All of the things that we used to worry about so much before. And actually now that sense of humanity and compassion and genuine kindness, people have been so much better at standing up and saying, oh, that's what matters. Do you know, actually, we need to bring ourselves all the time. And and we were talking earlier about Twitter, and I think that's why I like that so much, because you can say on there who you are and what you're about, just as much as you might want to say there's been a great report published today. Um, so you can you can you can show yourself as a rounded person. And, it, and because it, it's good to do that, it takes the pressure away. I think in some ways it's kind of stripped us all a little bare. You know, I, mm. I think um, things that might have mattered to me before would have been uh, wearing makeup and not allowing the staff to see me not dressed for work properly. <laughs> uh, I don't want to scare the horses, but you know, they haven't quite seen me in my pyjamas. But you know, <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a level of intimacy that strangely comes with the remoteness of doing team calls and Zoom. Yeah, it is great, isn't it? I absolutely, that, that is like I said to my husband, that's one thing I'm going to really, really miss because I joined um, Public Health Scotland when we were locked down. So I've not really met, I think I've met three people um, out of the whole organisation because everybody else has been virtually, so I've not seen them in person. And I'm actually going to really, really miss, I've seen their kitchens, I've seen their families, I've seen their dogs, cats, their, when they're decorating, or, you know, it, it just... It, it's just going to be, I just hope that bit lasts, actually, that we, do you know, when you, before you used to have to make an excuse about, oh, God, you know, I need to take some time off because I need to get the kids to the doctors or whatever, and, or they're, they're coming in with questions. It's just part of the whole same, you know, same place in your life. It's not something you need to hide anymore. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, we don't want to go back to business as usual, oh, do we? Oh, God, no. I'm, I'm throwing out all my suits. I hated them anyway. <laughs> As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.